when that chimp part of us, that lizard brain, or however you want to call it, is active, and we get that emotional response of, I can't believe that's happening, that's, that's so inappropriate, that's wrong, doctors and healthcare professionals often have a very strong sense of justice, a, a very strong sense of what's right and wrong. And if you're to have an emotional state where you feel anger towards someone else or frustration, it's almost a knee-jerk response to say, report them, because that instantly absolves you of ownership of the emotional state. You're basically saying, well, you're not like me. You're different. You're a bad mouther. You're a bad mouther who needs to be punished or sorted out or fixed. So therefore, that external agency can do that. Ever been in a situation where someone's acting in a really inappropriate way and you're not sure whether to call it out or not? Maybe you're not sure exactly how to have the conversation or even if it's your place to have it. Maybe you're worried that if you do, you'll just become the next person on the list or your relationship will be doomed forever. In this episode, Dr Ed Pooley, communication skills expert with a background in general practice, and I discuss one of those tough calls where we probably know what we ought to do in a certain situation, but doing it just seems too hard. We chat about the importance of listening to understand, not just to be heard, and how to approach this in a way which leaves the relationship intact, if not stronger. I'm sure that if you were doing something which caused difficulty to your colleagues, you'd like someone to call you out on it. So tune into this episode if you want to be able to do the same for others. Listen to find out what so many of us get wrong when trying to confront tricky situations. A simple model which will help you understand the things which are guaranteed to trigger other people and why our first knee-jerk reaction could make things 10 times worse. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for doctors and busy professionals in healthcare and other high-stress jobs who want to beat burnout and work happier. I'm Dr. Rachel Morris, a former GP, now working as a coach, speaker and specialist in resilience at work. Like frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, many of us have found that exhaustion and stress are slowly becoming the norm. But you are not a frog. You don't have to choose between burning out or getting out. In this podcast, I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this and inviting you to make a deliberate choice about how you will live and work. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours? Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash getyourlifeback. So it's great to have with me back on the podcast today, a friend of the podcast, Dr. Ed Pooley. Welcome back, Ed. Morning, Rachel. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. It's a nice sunny day, which just is lifting my spirits. So anyway, we're back today and Ed, 
is a communication skills trainer with a background in general practice. So it's wonderful to have him back. And we have a series of podcasts, Ed and Rachel's Tough Calls, because there's lots of stuff that comes at us, whether we're practicing as doctors or in other healthcare areas or even in another high stress profession. There's stuff that comes at us that we just don't really know how to handle, or maybe we do know how to handle them, but we don't really want to, or it just feels really difficult and really awkward. And Ed, I think that's really one of your specialisms, isn't it? In digging down into how we can have those tough conversations that we really don't want to have. Absolutely. We all face those situations where we know what to do, or we don't know what to do. And when we know what to do, it's often difficult or challenging. Having a set of skills that you can fall back on or practice that situation gives you a much better outcome going forward. And, and if you're in that situation again, I was reading a book recently by a chap called Donald Miller, who, who I, I talk about quite a lot. I really love his work. Now, he's uh, given some sort of business advice, and he was talking about the fact he once was having some coaching, and his coach said to him, Donald, stop choosing to be confused. I thought, that's interesting. And he said the reason was he was discussing a difficult issue with an employee or someone in his organisation, and the narrative was, oh, I don't really don't know what to do. I'm really stuck with this. I'm really confused. And the coach said to him, you're not stuck at all. You're not confused. You know exactly what you need to do. The problem is you don't want to do it. And it just feels too awkward. So do you think it's mainly that we do know what we need to do? It's just how to do it that we get stuck with. Absolutely. We, we have a tendency to pick a more socially acceptable way of framing things when we feel that we can't do something so if we're not sure how we're going to approach something is going to be okay we might say we're confused if we're wanting to avoid conversations we often say we're tired or you know it's not today we'll do it tomorrow those kind of approaches because they're more socially acceptable I think the key is that you have to separate what you need to do from the emotion of what you need to do and if you do that, for example, in that in Donald Miller's case, he knows what to do, but the emotion is causing the stress and that's leading to the confusion because he's trying to balance what he knows he needs to do with an emotional state he doesn't want to feel. And that's where the confusion comes in. Mm, that's so true because so many of these difficult conversations are only difficult because we're so worried about upsetting the person we feel stressed and anxious about it, but actually we do really know what we need to do. So let's dive in. Let's dive into a dilemma this week. And this is one um, I actually spotted on social media. It was posted as a dilemma and I thought it was really interesting, particularly some people's reactions to it. So essentially the dilemma went like this and it was, I lead a team and one of my juniors has been bad mouthing many of the seniors and undermining them. What should I do? Now, on the face of it, it seems pretty obvious what you should do, but I was really fascinated to read a lot of the replies because one of the first things that was written underneath this post was, oh, report them, report them, completely unacceptable. I thought, hang on a sec. If you think back to your own training, you know, did you ever criticise your seniors behind their back? Ever? Perhaps you probably did. Did you ever moan about things? 
And how would you feel if you got reported immediately without anyone speaking to you? So I was quite shocked and surprised because actually the, the people that were saying this were quite well educated and, and quite well-meaning people. And so, and I thought I, I would bring this to you to sort of unpick. I mean, am I right in that it's pretty obvious what to do here or is it not particularly obvious what to do here? My gut feeling is, as I suppose many of the listeners might be, is tell them to stop. It's, it's not an appropriate thing to do. It creates team disharmony. And we've, we, I mean, we've spoken about this, this concept of team disharmony and the type of workplace that you want to work in before, haven't we? And the answer is very simple. You tell them to stop. But we fear conflict. We fear someone saying, well, I'm not bad-mouthing the colleagues. Or there's that, you know, almost that, there's that gaslighting type of response and it becomes much more complicated. There is a simple strand of what you need to do that becomes overly complicated. And I think when we, when that chimp part of us, that lizard brain, or however you want to call it, is active, and we get that emotional response of, I can't believe that's happening, that's, that's so inappropriate, that's wrong. I mean, for example, doctors and healthcare professionals often have a very strong sense of justice, a, wrong, a, a very strong sense of what's right and wrong. And if you're to have an emotional state where you feel anger towards someone else or frustration, it's almost a knee-jerk response to say, report them, because that instantly absolves you of ownership of the emotional state. You're basically saying, well, you're not like me, you're different. You're a bad mouther. You're a bad mouther who needs to be punished or sorted out or fixed. So therefore, that external agency can do that. And I think that happens quite a lot. We see on social media all the time where there is, there are errors, there are problems, people make mistakes. And then very quickly, it becomes a very much an us and them, almost like a tribal type of approach. So for example, if you take people who say things on social media 5, 10, 15 years ago when social media was in its infancy and people were not as guarded as they perhaps are now and they may have said something inappropriate. The question we really need to ask ourselves is what do we do in that situation? You know, do we quickly jump to you're an awful person because of something you said 15, 20 years ago or actually you're a normal person who has an ability to change how they are and change their perceptions over time because surely that's what we want we want someone to be able to grow and develop as a person don't we but that sits uncomfortably with us because we think well i never did anything like that well you probably did but social media wasn't there at the time to capture all of those transgressions you did, which would have allowed you time to grow and develop as a person, which actually benefits society as a whole, really. I constantly look back at social media and I'm constantly so pleased that I grew up in a time where you couldn't stick things on Facebook, you couldn't mention things on Twitter, things weren't recorded, you didn't go out for the night and have it plastered all over social media that, you know, the day after. I think it's really, really tough, tough these days. Yeah, and, and it becomes very, very black and white, doesn't it, when it's on social media? And if you look at this dilemma, you know, someone's bad-mouthing their seniors, well, it's obvious, tell them to stop, that's a bad thing to do. But then if you get into the nuances of it, well, actually, maybe some of the seniors are yeah. a bit crap. <laughs> maybe they're not pulling their weight, or maybe 
it's a really difficult place to work and that junior is not seeing what the senior does maybe the junior is really frustrated with the the processes that are going on maybe they've been treated unfairly all those sorts of things and you suddenly go from a very black and white thing based on social media to a really 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 nuanced dilemma but i think the issue is when we start then to see the nuances as excuses and reasons not to then address mm. it because when I, whenever we do training on difficult conversations and, and conflict, you always say, you know, why haven't you addressed it? You know, think of a difficult conversation you should have had. Now tell us why you haven't had it. Well, not quite sure if I was the right person or maybe I've done something wrong too. Therefore, I, have I got the authority to address it? Am I right? What if, what if, what if? And all these different things start to then make you confused about, should you address the issue? Well, yes, you need to address the issue. But then we come up with all these excuses. Are they valid excuses, do you think? Or are they just our brain's way of trying to get out of something we don't want to do? I think it's our brain's way of trying to feel okay. You know, if we're in a situation where we need to give someone some feedback or we need to tell someone that something they did is not an appropriate way of doing it, we start to worry about, the righteousness of that call, the, the okayness of that. I think for me in this dilemma, someone bad-mouthing their seniors, creating team disharmony, clearly something has led to that behavior pattern. What is going on for that person that has led to that pattern of behavior? That's question one. Question two is, is that an appropriate way of voicing discontent or upset? And that, that's an easy no, isn't it? So what we can do by separating out the cause and the effect is to give our brains a little bit of a break and say, well, let's just focus on the effect. You know, the cause may be valid, but the effect is not. And so how do we have a conversation with that person so that we can validate the cause and find out if there is a problem and deal with it in a better way? So I might approach that person and say, what's going on? You know, I noticed that you're not happy with some of the things that your seniors are doing. You've made a couple of comments that would suggest to me that there's an issue going on here. And what I would like to do is to find out your perspective. Talk me through things. And so hopefully that's given you a, a, a relatively non-confrontational way of having that conversational opener. And then the person may say, oh, it's nothing. Or, but then you've drawn, you've drawn attention to the behavior. And it may stop. Or they may say, there is a massive problem. I can't stand the way that so-and-so belittles me. And so my response to that is to uh, badmouth, to be passive-aggressive, to be all of those non-overt ways of being hostile or aggressive, which people do. And that makes a lot of sense because there's always a reason for somebody's behaviour, isn't there? That people don't behave in a vacuum. They behave based on the memories of what's gone before, based on what's triggered them, based on past experiences, based on what they expect, and mostly based on what their unmet needs are. So if someone's bad-mouthing someone else, there's some need from that person that is is not met. Either that's a need to be yeah, treated properly themselves, or maybe there's a need to try to make themselves look good in front of other people and be accepted and recognized. Maybe they're worried about their own uh, performance. And so they're sort of trying to trying to deflect. I think the problem is so often when we think of these conversations that we've got to have, it's us versus them, us giving them difficult feedback. 
But what you've just said, actually, all difficult conversations start off with huge amounts of listening. Mm, absolutely. You know, you can't have a conversation where you are not interested in the other person's perspective and where they're coming from. What is the information that they have that I may not have? Can I learn something by getting that information? Because if you're not getting that information or that perspective and using it to form how you respond, you're only really doing half a job or you're ordering. That's not a conversation, that's an order. So by taking those extra steps and finding out information, that has two effects. One, it calms your chimp brain down from panicking because it gives you something tangible to address and b it gives you the opportunity to have a much better conversation because you're getting information that you can use to have that better conversation yeah i think we do struggle with with collecting that information don't we and i know that i've always worried that if i go and have that conversation it might then seem that i'm colluding because what I wouldn't want to do is go and have a conversation and and then it sound like I'm then slagging off my my colleagues or whatever. So how do you have that listening exploratory conversation without colluding and necessarily agreeing, but in an empathetic way? So they their chimp, their inner chimp isn't triggered. So they they feel that you you. I was going to say on on their side. That's sort of. I guess on the same branch rather than on their side. Yeah, so I might start that conversation by saying, I've noticed that you made a comment about person X. What, what was happening for you when you said that? You know, again, that's, all, that's an entirely neutral way of saying things. You're not saying, and I agree, or what you're saying is justified. At that point, all you're doing is data gathering. And then when you've captured the data, you can then say, do you think that was the appropriate way to go about voicing that concern you had? Because from my perspective, I don't think it was. So what I would like to do is to give you a chance to say the thing that you're concerned about in the most appropriate way and for me to use that information in order to make this situation feel better for everyone. If there is a genuine problem that you uncover, then it's your responsibility to then decide what to do with that going forward. You know, again, we need to get away from this right or wrong. What was what was the seed of disharmony or discontent that triggered that behavior in the person and then caused the response? We, we don't really want to start from a position of assuming everyone has malicious intent because the majority of people don't. Yeah, I think that is so important, that thing about what you're assuming their intent is. And that's... I think is when people get really, really triggered. And I've talked about this before, I think, on the podcast and probably with you as well, Ed, this thing about being over the net. And I heard it from Carol Rubins, David Bradford, who've written a book called Connect from a very brilliant course that they run, I think, at Stanford University, which is all about interpersonal mm. dynamics. So they affect, uh, The students know it as the touchy-feely course, but it's really, really popular in their business school. And they talk about the fact that any problems in interpersonal dynamics, generally when, when you're assuming you know what is in the other person's head, and that is basically completely over the net. So, yeah, I'm just thinking, Ed, if, if you had made some sort of derogatory comments about some stuff and I came up to you thinking you were just doing it because you thought that you were better than everybody else, then I'm going to say, Ed, you know, 
come on, that wasn't nice. You know, I don't, assuming, implying that you were trying to be mean or nasty or whatever. And that automatically triggers people when they feel that they are misunderstood. And, and I'd love to talk about the scarf model in a second, because I think that's really helped me with really recognising what sorts of things are gonna gonna trigger people. So I'm assuming that you meant to be horrible, that you're doing it for some sort of personal gain, rather than assuming good intent. So maybe assuming that you were doing it to maybe to try and change things that were frustrating you or assuming that you do have good intent, it just came out, came out the wrong way. And that is gonna really, really change how I then approach you about that. Because I think we hate being misunderstood, don't we? Mm. And we get very offended. I, I remember as a junior doctor when being accused of being sort of autocratic and aggressive. I, I really didn't mean to be that. I just didn't know how else to act when people didn't do what, what they needed to do. But they assumed that I was trying to be bossy. I was trying to be horrible. Actually, the reality was I, I was lost and I was, I was at my wit's end and I was really worried that that the job wasn't getting done and worried about the patients. Now, if they'd have expressed that to me and said, and then maybe you could ask in a different way, that would be much, much more palatable to just assuming I was, I was trying to be difficult. But it's very, very difficult to assume good intent when we are feeling sort of backed into the corner ourselves, when our inner, inner chimps are out, isn't it? It is. I think that example that you gave is a, is a brilliant example because, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm guessing that, in that junior doctor state, there's uh, pressure, there's fear, there's the need to communicate quickly and effectively. So if you're in that, coming from that mindset and that perspective, you may have seen people who you looked to thinking, well, they look really confident. What do they do? They're very clear and they tell people what to do. And so you model that behavior but actually that's driven from a place of fear. So you're not, you know, again, in that situation, you weren't being malicious and you weren't trying to upset anyone. You were just trying to do what you thought was the appropriate way of acting. But instead of giving you feedback and saying, are you okay? You know, are you struggling with any part of this job? Is there something we can do to help? How can we make this feel better? People were saying, oh, you're autocratic, you're bossy, you're all of these labels that we attach. And I think, one way of assuming good intent is to imagine what you would do if the person doing the thing that's upsetting you is your child. You know, if you see a child, your child hit another child, what do you do? I get it. You're pushed for time. And with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops, top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz. You know that's wrong. You tell them it's wrong. You assume they didn't do it maliciously. And you respond in a way that allows them to shape and change their behavior for the better. Because they are doing something and something has triggered that that behavior. And what you've done is taken a step back. You know the behavior is wrong. You're going to tell them it's wrong, but you're 
you're operating from a position of trying to understand what's going on for that person. Mm. And that makes a lot of sense. I, I think assuming someone is your family member and treating them as such it is really, really helpful because because then what's happening is you're going, right, the relationship is there, right? Because we're in the same family, you can't get rid of me. And I absolutely have your best interest at heart. So I'm going to be absolutely honest here. And also when you're talking to your child, you would never, well, in <laughs> probably in retrospect, you would never have that conversation while they're still really aggravated and in the corner and wanting to hit people and really angry still. You'd, you'd need to wait until they'd calm down. And then they themselves would probably go, oh, yeah, that wasn't the right thing to do, mum, was it? You're like, eh, probably, probably better ways of doing, doing that. And, and, and it's all much better. Do you think, Ed, that we always know when people are in their calm state or can some people be quite triggered and are quite anxious, have their chimp out state without us knowing? Oh, that's a difficult one. I think if you've taken training and you, and you understand about psychology and body language, you, you can see predictors of people being in their chimp state. You know, they have facial coloration in their cheeks, their muscle tension is higher, their pupils are dilated. They're in that state of heightened autonomic function. If you don't know what you're looking for, which is the majority of people, because it's not something that particularly interests them, then it is quite difficult. And so you have to be switched on to the language people use. Is, is the person using neutral language? Are they using aggressive language? Are they using defensive language? If it's anything other than neutral, there's probably an emotional state that is attached to that. And what's interesting is to, is to try the experiment of trying to detect the emotional state. What I, what I did a few years ago, I, I used to be into martial arts quite a lot, and I remember doing a training course where the idea was to prepare yourself for somebody attacking you when you weren't expecting it. In the same way that doctors do CPR training, if you drill that behavior, you learn how to recognize your own, your own autonomic response in the face of threat. And what was really interesting was this guy was dressed up in this full padded suit and he was deliberately trying to wind me up and irritate me so that I could feel the adrenaline and then know what to do with it. And what I did was the thing that diffused the situation completely was I said, what's your name? And he went, what? Because he was so expecting me to be aggressive or confrontational that the thought of me trying to connect with him totally disempowered him. He was like, my name's Jeff. And I was like, well, my name's Ed. How are you doing today? And he went, what? This isn't how it's supposed to go. And I think if you start from a position of trying to connect with others first, then try and understand them, then feedback, that that gives you a good pattern of things that you can do. If, you, if you're trying to connect with someone, that's almost never a bad thing because it, it allows you to, like you say, sit beside them on that tree and understand what's going on. You know, and, and people would recognize that from interactions with patients where there's been difficulty or interactions with clients if they work in the legal profession where there's been dispute or upset. Connection first, information and feedback second is, is a really good approach, I think. That's really good advice. So I think 
we are probably all walking a bit around a bit like Inspector Clouseau waiting for Cato to jump oh, out absolutely. at any point, <laughs> um, especially as a, I think as a junior doctor, you know, there's a lot of criticism coming at you from everywhere. You know, you're never on the right ward at the right time. There's 20 people want you at once. You're being too slow. You forget to do this. The patients are waiting. So you've got it coming from all sides. And so you're going to be very, very easily, easily triggered into the, into that, you know, stress zone, into your chimp zone. And I think as a, as a senior member of staff, you, you really need to be the one to, yeah, to make that connection, to, to be really, really aware of that, the fact that you might, might trigger someone. And I think we don't quite recognize enough the things that might trigger somebody. And there's the scarf model has helped me really a lot with this. I mean, you can obviously go back to the neuroscience and go, okay, the really basic stuff that triggers you is physical threat, you know, bear coming towards you, about to be run over by a bus. The group threat will trigger you because if you were thrown out of the cave, when we lived in caves, if the group didn't like you, you were kicked out of the tribe, you would die of exposure, be eaten by a bear, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, we don't want to upset people. That is a, an existential instinct. And then there's that hierarchical one as well, you know, the alpha male challenging you. But David Rock came out with a fantastic model called the scarf model, which we use a lot when we talk about change and what sort of things trigger people. And I keep coming back to this because there's an awful lot of these scarf factors at play in almost everything we do in medicine and these high stress jobs. So SCARF stands for status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness and fairness. Now, status, we can think of status as, you know, if you get challenged by the alpha male, then you're not going to react well. But status is at play in all sorts of interactions, isn't it? Whether you're a, a doctor or another healthcare professional or a patient or a manager, there's all this sort of difficult interplay. And we were talking I think it was on a webinar with someone quite recently about the fact that you know just the fact that someone's a a doctor or has a particular position can actually trigger other people into the corner as they notice that hierarchy mm. even if even if you don't so i just think the very fact that you are a senior person talking to a junior person there will always be that status involved even if you're the nicest person in the world and you don't believe in hierarchy and you don't act like that now would, would you agree with that Absolutely. I think if you're aware of all of the various hierarchies and differentials in society, that gives you more power and potential to navigate that structure. Because it's there. We know it's there. So why do we pretend it isn't? Let's try and acknowledge it and work out how to either make the hierarchy fairer or how to navigate it better. Yeah. Jo Bircher actually was talking when she did the podcast um, about leadership, about the fact that if you are in a meeting you are a clinician then automatically people will stop talking if you've said something mm. because often they see a hierarchy there that you might not see and so it's very then difficult to get everybody's opinions about things if you've gone off and, and, and given yours which we do we offer opinions so quickly don't we as doctors it's just what's been drilled into us so that really made me think about oh, just just re remember that hierarchy so that's gonna that's gonna trigger people immediately even if you're the nicest person in the world just the fact that you are more senior having a conversation with a junior about something that is quite tricky is is, is going to potentially trigger that person You've got stuff around certainty. So if you don't quite know what's going to happen, if there are some unknowns, and I think a lot of the time we 
shy away from giving difficult feedback because we don't know if we're right or not. We don't know if what we're going to suggest is going to have a good outcome or not. So that, again, is very, very triggering for people, that whole piece around certainty. You can certainly see that playing out in change. Autonomy. Now, how do you see autonomy playing out in, in these sort of difficult conversations that we have to have? I think that's about control. Do I have control to change my environment or the position I'm in? So, for example, in this dilemma, we're looking at a junior colleague who is bad-mouthing seniors. Is the only way that they feel they can change a situation, albeit in a really dysfunctional way, by bad-mouthing? Or is there a mechanism by which they can experience more control? And we talked about this on a previous podcast about control and breaking down the bits that are in our control and the bits that are in others' control and how we might use that information to improve a system. Because we know, particularly in healthcare, that giving people autonomy to report problems or feedback appropriately saves lives. It has a huge impact on the ability of the healthcare structure to function more effectively because it's so big that if you didn't use all of, you know, if you didn't use all of your healthcare staff as, as almost like feedback sensors to know where things are and whether things are moving and, and working appropriately, you're losing vital information. Mm. That's really interesting. So I wasn't even thinking about it from that point of view that that we need to give people control over how they feedback, etc. I was also thinking about it from the conversations point of view. And I think earlier you said, you know, I would tell them that it wasn't appropriate and that, you know, do you think that was appropriate and could you do it? I'd like you to do it this way in the future. I was wondering whether that might actually trigger someone's autonomy. And they're like, you can't tell me what to do or how to act. Actually, maybe framing things either as a, either as a request. So would, would you be willing to do this? Or, or even even better, get them to come up with a solution themselves. Mm, well, that, that's the thing that would promote autonomy, isn't it? And if I, I don't want to jump the gun in the, in, the, in the scarf model, but fairness is also in there. Mm. So is what you have done a fair way of doing it? The sort yeah. of do unto others type mantra, I guess. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because, you know, nobody likes to be told what to do. do they? If someone says, no. you know, Ed, you've got to do this, you're like, don't think so i'll do it my way and you find that with coaching don't you that you, you you can see really obviously what needs to happen and you might even suggest it or to a friend and and they just go no nah, that's not going to work and then three months later they go oh, well i thought i'd do this you're like oh i told you that three months ago really would have been like helpful they have to come up with it themselves so it, it's it's much better for people to come up with the the methods, the suggestions themselves. So as much as you can facilitate that in the conversation, that will help with the with the autonomy thing. Um, and then you've got, of course, relatedness and relationships. And what I quite like about the SCARF model is it's not just about threat, it's about what you're drawn to as well. So mm. all the research about the amygdala is, yes, it pulls us away from the threat situations, but it also pulls us towards things and belonging it will pull you towards so relatedness it will pull you towards so it'll pull you away from a threat to your relationship and towards building a relationship so if you could maybe phrase this in a way that actually this is going to pull us towards good relationships within our department or within our team and provide some reassurance that having this conversation isn't going to affect our relationship or 
give them some reassurance? I mean, how, how would you do that? Um, I think it, it's easier if you start from a non-critical approach. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you can say, well, why are you doing it that way? You know, what is doing it that way achieving? Is that working for you? Or is there perhaps a different way that we could be doing this? Because my aim as the person giving you this feedback is actually to build up the team and make it work better. And that includes helping you within the team feedback about things that you've noticed are a problem, but in an appropriate way. So again, nothing I'm saying here is very confrontational at all, but it is being very clear and very boundaried and very neutral, which hopefully shouldn't be pushing their you know, their adrenaline amygdala response too hard. I think what's really interesting if we look at particularly neurobiology is is the relative impact of dopamine, serotonin, adrenaline, and oxytocin as those kind of four key transmitters that modify most of our behavior in terms of reward, pleasure-seeking, threat, and connection-seeking. It, it's a fascinating newer field of that sort of neurobiology of behavior that I think having an awareness of is really is really useful yeah so so it's really really changed the way I've been thinking about these sorts of things just recognizing when someone is is triggered in the corner and the fact that that is really going to change their responses let's just talk about fairness because fairness seems to be a really universal thing in every single culture that has been studied fairness is the is the thing that really triggers people if that if that is breached and i'm thinking in this sort of conversation if i was that junior i would be on high alert for fairness because i'd be Mm. thinking well how come they're talking to me everybody's moaning this isn't fair or well they can act however they want to and i'm the one getting a good old rollicking here so how does one avoid triggering that that response to, to fairness? I think get the information out early. Say, you know, is this is this something that you've particularly noticed and are frustrated about? Or have you noticed that lots of people are frustrated about it? If so, and I don't want you to name any names here, this isn't about, you know, seeking to punish people. This is seeking to find out, is what you are saying, does it have a basis in reality is is it really what's happening is this what everyone is doing or is it just something that that you're doing because that's a fair approach you're not singling someone out and saying they just happen to be the person you're talking to but what you're gaining from them is the is it just you who's noticed this or are lots of people noticing it because again when we're in that amygdala response and I'm, I'm aware that some of this may be triggering that amygdala response for them we tend to think in black and white ways because we need to for that for that response to be as as quick and as effective as it is when we're under threat and so they might say well everyone is saying it and you're like everyone is there anyone who isn't saying it you know and try and get them to explore that in the same way that you might with a child who says nobody likes me really is it nobody or is it one particular person you've had an issue with and this is generalization of of belief Mm. And could you check in with them about the fairness thing? So say, is is this feeling fair to you? Or do you think there's anything here in what I've said that, is, that isn't fair? I mean, is that a good suggestion or is that just going to I think it problems? is. The, the, the concern is that it's almost a, 
a presupposing question, isn't it? You can't really say no to that if someone is in a hierarchical position to you and saying, am I being fair? You're like, yes. You know, you can't, it kind of prevents you from saying the no. There is a lot of pressure. So you might say something like, how might this feel fairer? How might this feel fairer? Rather than making it a, is this or isn't it? Is there anything we can do to make this feel fair? Which, again, is, is giving them aut- a, an increasing yeah. sense of autonomy because you're giving them the opportunity to feed back to you and model how to give feedback appropriately. Mm. And, Ed, what should you do if you notice that someone really has been triggered but you've got to have this conversation? I mean, we always teach, you know, press the pause button, do it another time, give people a chance to get out of the corner, all those sorts of things. But sometimes you do just have to have these conversations. What... What do you do in those situations? Is it ever good just to push ahead or do you always just have to go, okay, I can see this is difficult? Because what if you're in a position where it's always going to be difficult and there's going to be no time when they're not triggered? I think you have to read it depending on the feedback you're getting. You know, sometimes you just have to push forward. Sometimes you just have to press pause. And the more times you have these conversations, the better and more nuanced your ability to decide when is the most appropriate route to take. You know, in, in the same way that I wouldn't want anyone listening to think do we really have to have some protracted conversation about a behavior that's frustrating and irritating and and causing disharmony in the team for every transgression no you don't but by having the skill set to manage it if it becomes a more complicated conversation is going to be helpful Hmm. and what do you do about those people that every time you try to feed back they burst into tears or get very angry and so very soon it's just learned that you just don't say anything to upset that person i would pre-warn them i would say we know when we've had this kind of conversation before that you found it upsetting but it is something i'm going to need to have to i'm going to need to say so i have to say it and and you just have to be very clear about that because sometimes that that sort of walking out crying those almost sort of unconscious processes and behaviors are often there as a defense you know they they usually not but sometimes they are a defense mechanism which says don't carry on don't don't continue Um, and sometimes you have to well you have to change tack and approach it in a different way and again it's it's about practicing the conversation to know how to to manage it to say what you have to say in the kindest way possible in a way that builds connection Gosh, there's so much in all of that. We could talk this about this for a long time, but we don't have forever. So, Ed, if you were answering that post on social media, what would be the summary of the steps you should take to deal with this issue? Connect first, information second, content third. So, find, so build a connection, find out all the information and then work out a plan of what you need to do. And with that process, you are trying to differentiate between what you need to do and the emotion associated with what you need to do so that that way you're being consistent. You know, in in the same way that if one of your friends were bad-mouthing someone and someone told you about it, you'd have a very different response than if it was someone you intensely disliked or you found out was bad-mouthing someone. And that's all down to the emotion of it and, and your ability to let someone off the hook, for instance, if you know them better or might understand their situation. 
you know, give other people that chance to to build connection and gather information and, and understand how your own brain works when you're having conversations that are challenging. Mm. It makes you a better communicator. And that's not that's never a bad thing. Totally. I mean, I, I remember when we were teaching about emotional intelligence, we'd always say that as a leader, some of your success is down to IQ, but actually not that much. As a leader, probably 80% of your success is down to emotional intelligence and the way that you can do these sorts of things. So it's really, really important skill. I think from, from what you've been saying, the things I'm taking away is firstly, approach it assuming good intent from that person. Assume they weren't trying to be malicious, but they've got some unmet needs that, that aren't happening and we need to try and uncover those. And I love treat them as a, a close friend or a, or a relative. So, you know, you've got their best interest at heart. And I think just be aware of all those triggers, all those things, perhaps in the scarf model that may be triggering them that you may not have thought about, particularly hierarchy when it comes to the senior to the junior. You might think you're being as fair and as open, as empathetic as possible. But when you said, you know, when you just stopped me just now and said, actually, that sounds like if you're a senior saying it's a junior, is that fair? Yeah, I would have thought that was a really reasonable question to ask. But yes, someone else might say it. I can't contradict her because she's she's senior. So keeping that autonomy, always throwing the ball back in their court so they're not feeling that you are using your hierarchy to get your way. I think that's really important. Well, wow, we, we've covered a lot there. <laughs> we have. It's been a good dilemma. Let's let's see what the, the audience throw us next week or next time. Totally. So if anybody else has got a dilemma they would like us to discuss around interpersonal relationships, difficult conversations, anything really, just email us at hello at youarenotafrog.com and we will try and tackle that. So Ed, thank you so much. If people wanted to hear more about your work, find out more about what you do, where should they find you? So every week I post on uh, my Facebook group, which is Difficult Conversations in Medicine, and that is primarily open to healthcare professionals. If you want more information from me or you want to look at getting me to look at how your organisation communicates or something like that, drop me an email at edward at 10minutemedicine.com and I'd be happy to have a chat with you. That's great. And we will also put a download link to our In the Corner handout there. So if you're interested in the in the corner response and your amygdala response, just go there. You can, you can get that. And... We also have a a Facebook group called The Shapes Collective. So if anyone wants to pop in there and discuss things, then then please do. You can put some dilemmas in there as well and we can pop in there and have a look. So that's great. Ed, we'll see you next time. Perfect. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, we provide a self-coaching CPD workbook for every episode. You can sign up for it via the link in the show notes. And if this episode was helpful, then please share it with a friend. Get in touch with any comments or suggestions at hello at youarenotafrog.com. I love to hear from you. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it and leave a review wherever you're listening. It really helps. Bye for now.